Pretty good turnout for this morning. Well done. It is fun to be together, uh, maybe especially uh, when many people can't make it. Not, nothing against those who aren't here this morning, but it makes things feel a little special. Uh, hanging around the house yesterday when it was so cold, uh, sort of snuggling in and enjoying the, the special time uh, was fun. You guys want me to do anything on the mic? Are we good? We're good. Okay. So anyway, glad, glad we're here. We did a Christmas morning message, I think it was just last year, and had a group of about 60, I think, that made it. I think we're a little bigger than that group this morning. So glad you're here. Glad we're here together. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Psalm 105. We're going to be there this morning. And uh, through the holidays, we haven't been in the Psalms for a while, but between this morning, Psalm 105, and next Sunday, Lord willing, Psalm 106, we'll finish books three and four. That's sort of the latest series I've been teaching through. So, you know, the book of Psalms, one big book, but it's got five divisions within it. And so we'll finish through the fourth division, Lord willing, next Sunday. And what you'll see, I'll mention this again, but... Psalm 105 and Psalm 106 is kind of like a, a, a pair of twins, and Psalm 105 is the happy twin, and Psalm 106 is the unhappy twin. And so what you'll get this morning is Psalm 105 is the psalmist looking back over Israel's history, and the looking back, the remembering, is all for the sake of giving God thanks. So remember, look back, look back at what God's done in our history and give thanks. And what you'll see next week, uh, Psalm 106 is looking back on Israel's history and seeing not how God was providing, but how Israel was responding. And so it's a cautionary tale because they did what we often do. They, they pretty well blew it. Time after time after time. And so, Psalm 105, the happy song, looking back, we're giving thanks because we saw what God was doing. Psalm 106, I don't think we're going out on a low note on this series with this one, but Psalm 106 is a cautionary tale because it's looking at Israel's response in each trial they face. So, when the trial came up, how did we respond? So, there are contrasts, and they're very intentionally so back to back in the book. <clears throat> so Psalm 105 is a psalm of thanksgiving. Before we go through, we'll read the whole song. We'll break it up as we go. But as we do, ask yourself this. So if I, right now, this morning, if I just look back, so it's the beginning of a new year, and so whether you say it's the end of one or the beginning of another, or if you just say it's a strategic time or it's any day in which I'm taking a backward glance at my life, uh, what is the emotion or the attitude or the memory or memories that tend to come up first? Do you know what I mean? So if I say, how was your last year? So I look back on 2023, and, and what's my initial thoughts as I'm thinking about what occurred in the year? So for many of us, it might be it was a brutal year, and I look back and I may have a sense of pain or anguish, or I may have regrets, that would be one thing. I look back, I remember what the year looked like, and it was a challenge, and it was painful. We don't always start where this song starts, but this is the thing. We want to end up where this song ends up. So if we look back and say, really challenging year, 
or I didn't do well, all that's fine. We, we can work through those. We can end up at the place of thanksgiving, which is where Psalm 105 wants to take us. So what was 23 like for you? Or what was the last five years? Or whatever's significant for you, I look back, what comes to mind? And, and how does God want me to see that as well? So the first 15 verses of this song are also in 1 Chronicles 16. So I say that for two reasons. If you, most people don't read through First and Second Chronicles, but if you do and these words sound familiar, you'd remember, oh, they're in another part of the Bible as well. Um, and they also help us place the song. So the fact that they're put in David's lifetime in First Chronicles should tell us that's about the time this song was written. It's not attributed to anyone particular, but because it's in First Chronicles, we know it's written about the time of King David. Alan Ross summarizes this song this way. He writes, By tracing the history of Israel as the Lord moved his people miraculously in fulfillment of the covenant promises, the psalmist praises the greatness of the Lord's love to his people in history as he remembered his covenant. Now, we'll read through this whole song, and I want to preemptively say this. If you have read through especially Genesis and Exodus often enough so that it's really familiar to you, so those two books are really familiar to you, when you hear or read Psalm 105, in your mind you're thinking of all the stories because they'll, they'll clue you. Everything here is a reference to what Scripture's already recorded, almost all of which is in Genesis and Exodus. But if you're not real familiar with those two books, you're just going to hear the psalmist making some reference you won't have a context for. So, when, so two things on that. When we read through, I'll introduce each section and say this is what it's referring to. And then on your study sheet, you have references that will take you to the specific places the psalmist is referring to. So you can look those up later. So if you're old school in those two books, you'll say, oh yeah, I know exactly what he's talking about. If you're not, that the reference will be less clear. So we'll try and give some context for that. Okay, so this is a bit of a history lesson. So ESV, Psalm 105, starting also, by the way, I sometimes, uh, my outline is sometimes different than your Bible might be, and I may break it up just a little bit differently than yours does. So, okay, hopefully it comes out with, with uh, great clarity. The psalmist wrote, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, um, all caps, meaning Yahweh, God's covenant name. Give thanks to the Lord, call upon His name, make known His deeds among the peoples. Sing to Him, sing praises to Him, tell of all His wondrous works, glory in His holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord and His strength, seek His presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and the judgments he uttered. O offspring of Abraham, his servant, children of Jacob, his chosen ones, he is the Lord our God, his judgments are in all the earth. So we start out with this ringing clarion call to remember and to give God thanks. Verses 8 through 15 give the first concrete reason the psalmist is saying, give thanks for or because. So he's going to talk about God's covenant promises. So he says, remember, uh, excuse me, God, he remembers his covenant forever. The word that he commanded for a thousand generations. The covenant that he made with Abraham. His sworn promise to Isaac. 
which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute, to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying, To you I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance, when they were few in number, of little account, and sojourners in it. Wandering from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another people, he allowed no one to oppress them. He rebuked kings on their account, saying, Touch not my anointed ones, do my prophets no harm. Verses 16 through 24, give God thanks because he sent a deliverer. So this really has to do with uh, Jacob's son Joseph. And if you remember the story at all, you know, in, in circumstances he wouldn't have enjoyed in the moment, he is taken from his family, taken down to Egypt, you know, in shackles as a slave. He goes from low to low, he ends up in prison. And so this is referring to Joseph's story and how God was using him to set up Israel's deliverance. Verse 16, When he summoned a famine on the land, so God summoned a famine on the land, and broke all supply of bread, he had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. His feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron until what he had said came to pass. The word of the Lord tested him. The king, that would be Pharaoh, the king sent and released him. The ruler of the people set him free. He made him lord of his house and ruler of all his possessions to bind his princes at his pleasure and to teach his elders wisdom. Then Israel came to Egypt. Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham. And the Lord made his people very fruitful and made them stronger than their foes. Verse 25 through 36, give thanks for God's powerful intervention. Really the psalmist is referring, he doesn't name all ten, but this would be the ten plagues or miracles God brought about through Moses and Aaron as they went and told Pharaoh, let my people go. And then God, God using these, ending on the last one, the death of the firstborn, that would have been the night of the Passover. Uh, verse 25, he, God, turned their hearts, the Egyptians, to hate his people, to deal craftily with his servants. He sent Moses, his servant, and Aaron, whom he had chosen. They performed his signs among them and miracles in the land of Ham. Remember, uh, the Egyptians are from Noah's descendant, his son Ham, and so they're often referred to as the land of Ham the place of the Egyptians. He sent darkness and made the land dark. They did not rebel against his words. Israel didn't. He turned their waters into blood and caused their fish to die. Their land swarmed with frogs, even in the chambers of their kings. He spoke and there came swarms of flies and gnats throughout their country. He gave them hail for rain and fiery lightning bolts through their land. He struck down their vines and fig trees and shattered the trees of their country. He spoke, and the locusts came, young locusts without number, which devoured all the vegetation in their land and ate up the fruit of their ground. He struck down all the firstborn in their land, the first fruits of their strength. Again, that's the night of Passover. And then last section, verses 37 through 45, give thanks because God delivered Israel from Egypt and to the land of promise. So God's provision throughout the 40 years in the wilderness and then taking them right in to the promised land. Verse 37, Then he, God, brought out Israel from Egypt 
with silver and gold, and there was none among his tribes who stumbled. Egypt was glad when they departed, for dread of them had fallen upon it. He spread a cloud for a covering and fire to give light by night. They asked, and he brought quail and gave them bread from heaven in abundance. He opened the rock, and water gushed out. It flowed through the desert like a river. For he remembered his holy promise and Abraham his servant. So he brought his people out with joy, his chosen ones with singing. And he gave them the lands of the nations, and they took possession of the fruit of the people's toil, that they might keep his statutes and observe his laws. Praise the Lord. So the psalmist, this, this introduction, this call to look back to remember that leads to thanksgiving. Look at the big rocks of what God did and give thanks. Guys, we're going to look at four points. I want to draw four out. We could take all day just reviewing the history that he's bringing up. There's story after story after story. We're just going to look at a few of the big rocks. The first is this. If you look at verses 1 through 5, you've got this stirring call to give thanks and to do the things that lead you to see things God's way and give Him thanks. In the first five verses, you have 11 verbs. So there's 11 action words. The psalmist says, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. 11 times because everything is leading to him saying, we should be giving God thanks. Look at those verses. Uh, Give thanks, call on his name, verse 1, make known his deeds. Verse 2, sing, sing, tell. Verse 3, glory and rejoice. Verse 4, seek, seek. And verse 5, remember. So the psalmist is saying if you look back on Israel's history and you see what God has done, thanksgiving is going to be the fruit or should be the fruit of that. And guys, this term, this term alone, give thanks, is used 76 times in the book of Psalms alone. So this theme, this notion that it is both our duty and our joy to give God thanks, it's a constant refrain throughout Scripture. It's true in the Old Testament, it's true in the New Testament as well. Give God thanks for who He is, Focuses our minds back on the ultimate source of every blessing we've ever experienced. You know, if you had a bad year last year or a challenging year, or if somebody talks to you about giving thanks on any day and you say you have no idea what's going on in my life or what this looks like, uh, it's not appropriate for me to give thanks. Now, there are times we weep, right? Paul says, 2 Corinthians, weep with those who weep. There's a time for weeping, time for laughter, Ecclesiastes, a time for everything. We get that. But as an attitude of the heart and mind, this notion of giving God thanks makes sense, even in bad times. James 1.17 alone, uh, every good gift you've ever experienced, every blessing, every joy, every tasty bite of food, every fun time, every bit of sunshine, every breath you've taken, it has one source. You haven't lived a day that God hasn't blessed you. And this, James reminds us that every good thing, every perfect thing you've ever known, it's all come from one source, and it's God. Every good thing. There's no sense in which God sends you anything that isn't ultimately good. He's not taking away, by the way, in James, hard-headed reality, right? James 1 not only says give thanks, but it, says, uh, it talks about suffering. He's not saying life isn't filled with suffering But you've still got this notion that all the blessings in your life, they've all come from God. Don't let the thought of challenge and trial and difficulties in life overrule the truth 
that every good thing you've had came from one person, one source, it came from God. So on any day, I can give thanks for life and breath. I can give thanks that I'm here. There's all kinds of things I can do if I'm open to it. Also, listen to this. 1 Thessalonians 5.18, Paul, the apostle, who knew something about suffering and oppression, wrote, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Give thanks in all circumstances. Now, just like James 1, he's not saying that every circumstance in your life is something that feels good in the moment or that is inherently positive or inherently a blessing. But even in the midst of your most challenging time, if you know Christ, you've got promises from God that He's with you, that His provision is there for you, etc. Whatever's going on, the Christian is in a position in which he can give God thanks, but we have to cue ourselves for this. So, 1 Thess 5, Paul says, in every circumstance, it's all-inclusive. God has set us up. And as you know, if you practice this at all, what you find is giving thanks liberates you. It frees you from depression, tension, strife. Giving thanks liberates us, and that's where God wants us. Uh, giving thanks is also the occupation of heaven. You know, you tell people, uh, C.S. Lewis said, uh, the unredeemed would not want to be in heaven because they couldn't appreciate it. They wouldn't like anything about it. Well, for us, we say if you don't like to praise God, if you don't like to worship God, and if you don't like to give God thanks, you will not like heaven because that's what's going on. So if you look in Revelation 4 and 5, the 24 elders that are referenced there, what you see, they're praising and worshiping God the Father and God the Son in chapters 4 and 5. And they show up again in chapter 11, and what are they doing there? They're giving God thanks. If I can find it. Revelation eleven seventeen. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. And this is a reference, the, this is the same passage in which the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God and of His Christ. They're thanking Jesus because He's taking up His role on earth. Uh, when we begin to give thanks, our memories are stirred. And what we find is we've got one reason after another after another to give God thanks. Remembering and starting the process leads to more giving thanks. Here's another thing, and this is huge. This is huge. Uh, what you'll find is that humble people tend to be thankful, and thankful people tend to be humble. Listen to this from Romans 1.21. They knew God, but they didn't honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. They became futile in their thinking. Now, this is in a passage that's showing that the Gentiles have turned their backs on truth and on God. But Paul, the apostle there, is saying it's not because they didn't know something about it, but they're proud and they want their own way. And as you know, as you read through the rest of Romans 1, they, they go from one degree to a greater degree of moral blindness. That's, by the way, that's going on in the world around us today, isn't it? But, but it's not without cause. What you find is that thankfulness grows in the soil of humility. If, and guys, here's the thing. This is a reality check. If we don't find ourselves to be thankful people at some significant level, it's an indication of pride. Because God is worthy of thanks. And so what you'll find is humble people, people that are biblically humble, they tend to be thankful. And thankful people 
tend to be humble. Also, Luke 17, you remember the story where 10 lepers come to Jesus? And he, he says, uh, be healed, and they start to walk away. You know, go to the priest, show them, you know, do the, do the law, follow through with the law. And as they walk away, they realize they've been healed of leprosy. So you can imagine they were elated. They're joyful. This is not something anyone else could do. But do you remember what, what happens? One of them, only one, turns around and gives Jesus thanks. And what does Jesus say? He indicts the nine for not returning to say thank you. Where are the nine? He assumed they should have turned around and said thank you, but they didn't. Thanksgiving was the appropriate thing to do. The nine didn't do it. So thanksgiving is meant to be a pattern of life for us. Just like the Jews, just like the psalmist in Psalm 105, it's meant to be a pattern. So before you go on on your study sheet, what am I thankful for today? And if it's hard to come up with something, pause. Give yourself a little bit of time. What am I thankful for today? And generally what you'll find is one thing will lead to another, to another, to another. But oftentimes we've got to cultivate this because it may not come naturally. Oftentimes it doesn't, but we want to think about that. And is it our habit to thank God? Is it our habit to thank God? You know, one of the things I love about the family meal and if, if you're married, if you've got a spouse at home, if you've got kids, do you guys gather intentionally to eat meals together? Because God gave the family table and family meal time as this incredibly powerful means and mechanism of binding people to one another. It's fellowship over meal. This is true. If you sit down with strangers and you share a meal together, you'll find, well, we've had great conversation. We've been found, bound together. And how do we start those times? We pray. And what do we do? We give God thanks for the meal that we're enjoying together. It should be a given. Family meals should be a a discipline, something we practice. And we're starting it by giving God thanks for what's in front of us. This is a good thing. But it's not just at meals that giving God thanks should be the norm. And you know, oftentimes when we pray, if you think of the Lord's Prayer as a model prayer, you know, Father in heaven, there's a certain way of thinking through, prioritizing what we're praying about. And giving God thanks as a way of starting prayer is also just a great discipline. Lord, thank you for, before I get to any of the things that I'm facing, the needs that I'm going to ask God about, Lord, thank you for all the ways you're already providing for me. Well, look at the verses 8 through 15. God keeps his promises. Uh, Verse 8 through 10 are the first specific reason, the concrete reason, the psalmist says, give God thanks. Looking back, here's the reason, give God thanks. This is interesting, and this is a typical Hebrew poetry. The, the psalmist, as he writes this, he's building this tension. So he's, he's raising this level of expectation through the way he's written the song. So he gives six general references. He's saying, give God thanks for, give God thanks for. Six general references before he tells them what we're thanking God for. You know, so by the time verse 11 hits, they're like, tell me already. What are we thankful for? What are we giving God thanks for? So look at verses 8 through 10 there for just a minute. So give thanks because God remembers his covenant forever. Okay, God remembers his covenant forever. So we're going to thank God and it's for a covenant, but there's more than one covenant. What, What covenant is he referring to? And by the way, how long does that covenant God gave, how long does it last? 
lasts forever. Second part of verse 8, the word, so the covenant now is described as the word, God commanded, how long did he command it? For a thousand generations. Guys, how long would a thousand generations be? So there's, uh, Scripture uses, I think, three different uh, definitions for a generation, but one of the common ones is 40 years. If this is a 40-year generation times a thousand, it's 40,000 years. Count on this promise for how long? For 40,000 years. How long was this written? 3,000 years ago. I, this is probably still in force, don't you think? Verse 9, the covenant, so general term again, but now he gets specific. The covenant he made with Abraham. Okay, so now it's an Abrahamic covenant. Where am I going to find that, by the way? In the book of Genesis. It's got to be there. His sworn promise now to Isaac. So a covenant to Abraham. It's reiterated as a, a, sw- a, a sworn promise to Abraham's son, Isaac. Oh, and by the way, verse 10, it's confirmed to Jacob as a statute, three generations, covenant, word, statute. Oh, and by the way, it goes to the fourth, to Israel, to the nation as an everlasting covenant. So we're excited about a covenant, a promise, a statute, a word. We just don't know what it is yet. So what am I giving thanks for? Verse 11, to you I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. The covenant is the land of promise. So you remember in in Genesis 12, God just tells Abram, you you go out to this place, I'll show you. That's going to be your nation. But you get repeated land promises, specific land promises throughout Genesis from there. So give thanks for God's covenantal, repeated, sworn, everlasting promise for the land of promise, the land of Canaan, as Israel's possession. Give thanks because God has made a promise that never goes out And it's that his people, Abraham's heirs, the nation of Israel, has a land of promise that's theirs, and it's theirs forever. Now, when did God make these covenant promises? And, and, you know, sometimes we want to study Scripture in its context so we know what God has said and what it means in context. But, of course, there's always principles that come out of this as well that we can apply for ourselves. So when God made these, these covenant promises to Abraham and his heirs, what was their status and what could they do to bring God's covenant promise to pass? So the psalmist says, verse 12 and 13, they were few in number, of little account, they were sojourners. They wandered from nation to nation, one kingdom to another kingdom. He says the promise was given when Israel couldn't do anything about the promise. And you remember back in the day of the patriarchs, They're just shepherds, guys, and there are city-states around, and there are ethnic groups around, and they're more numerous, and they're more powerful than Abram or Isaac or Jacob and their clans. They're given a promise when they can't do anything about it. They cannot bring this to pass. The, The promise will be fulfilled only because God makes it happen. So, you know, for you and I, oftentimes, we're looking at situations we can't figure it out. God says, you know, whatever you need in this situation, I'm going to give you. Do we trust Him? This is a good place to be. God, you got to come through or we're not being delivered. Well, that's, that's where this promise was. They can't fulfill it. God gives it to them when they have no power to do anything about it. God's going to bring it to pass. God promised the nation of Israel all the land along the Mediterranean. So if you look at your map and you see the Mediterranean Ocean, the east end, start right there against the east end, go up to the river, river Euphrates in the northeast, go all the way down the Mediterranean, 
to where it turns, and that would be the river of Egypt. And then we go all the way up the Rift Valley. So that's the Jordan, that's the Dead Sea. And then you, if you remember in the conquest also, God gave two and a half tribes land on the east side of the Great Rift Valley, the Jordan Valley as well. So all that land is what God promised to Abraham and his descendants. Now when you read further on, under King David and King Solomon, by and large they occupied all the land of promise, but not all of it. The, the Philistines were never defeated. There were geographic areas within the land of promise that Israel never conquered. This promise in its fullness has never been fulfilled, which tells me what? Still going to be. It's still going to come. Jet future. How long was the covenant promise and statute? Forever, for a thousand generations, it's everlasting. Guys, this has traction for us today. So, from 70 AD, when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem, to 1948, there is no nation of Israel in the land of promise. And Jews that lived in that land during that period, they were just like Abraham and the patriarchs. They were wanderers. They were the exception. They were not the rule. Until 1948, there is no national, ethnic, geographic nation of Israel until 48. You know, there were Christians, and they were mocked by many other Christians, who in the 1800s said, Israel will possess the land again and will occupy the land of promise because God said so. And you can see this echo throughout church history, though it's pretty muffled throughout most of the Middle Ages. It's there, and some Christians understood all the, all the time, Israel's out, there's going to be a day when they're back because God's made that promise. Psalm 105 is bringing that up again. When we look at Israel today, uh, Christians and are often um, uh, re reproved or rebuked for sort of an unqualified support of the nation of Israel. Guys, the nation of Israel is primarily an atheistic entity today. So we're not saying the nation of Israel is, uh, is, is by and large a group of believers in Yeshua, the Jewish Messiah. We're not saying that at all. But, but we are saying this. God's made promises, and not just the one Psalm 105 is referencing. He's made promises that when Jesus comes back to the earth, He comes back to the nation of Israel in the land of promise, to the Mount of Olives to the city of Jerusalem surrounded by the, na uh, the nation's armies. And it's where he sets up his millennial kingdom in Jerusalem. It's the place, the Jewish nation, to the, where the nations of the earth stream to pay their respects to the Jewish Messiah, now occupying the throne with the apostles ruling over the 12 tribes of Israel in the land of promise. That scripture has not been fulfilled. Now, Ezekiel 36 and 37 predicted that Israel would come back into the land. And do you remember the very graphic description of what that would look like? It would look like a desert valley filled with dry bones. And then as God speaks to Ezekiel, he, he sees the bones fit together, and he sees sinews and muscle and skin over. And so there are these bodies, these Jewish bodies present, but there's no life in them. And all of this is describing what leads up to Israel inheriting the, the blessing, the promise of the new covenant. That's the language of 36 and 37. 
So Israel in the land of promise starts out not in a living relationship with Yahweh, but while there, he breathes his spirit into them and the nation is revitalized again. It occurs in the land of promise. Uh, Romans 11.29 says the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. You can count on it. There's some theo- the theological development in Romans when you get to the end of chapter 8 and you get in 9, 10, and 11. 9, 10, and 11 don't need to be there for Paul's theology for the rest of the book to go through seamlessly. But they're there because the, the reference is just as Paul is told primarily Gentile believers in Rome when you're saved, you're saved forever. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. Future, past, angels, demons, whatever you think of, nothing can separate you. 9, 10, and 11 come in to say, even though it looks like the Jews are out of favor today, God's promises for the Jews are going to be fulfilled. And because you can count on God keeping His promises to the Jews, you can count on God keeping His promise of eternal life to you as well. If God, This is a big thing, guys. This is a big thing. It's a big theme in Scripture. If God doesn't keep His promises to the Jews, you have no reason to count on them yourself. If He can tell somebody one thing and make it unconditional and say it's all dependent on Him, and then you're not going to get it, don't trust Him. Paul's point is, you can trust Him. He's going to keep it. That's why the language of Romans 11 winds down. What God has promised is going to happen and all of, all of Israel will be saved. So you can count on God's promises to you. So for us as Christians today, let's say we're going through a tough time, what are some of the promises of God that we could count on in our trials? So I'm just thinking big picture. I'm thinking of things like, oh, John 10 or Romans 8, uh, or Hebrews 13, that Matthew 28, uh, Jesus is always with me. I'm never without him. I'll be with you to the end of the age. We can always say, well, we have enough because Jesus said, I'll never leave you and I'll never forsake you. So there's never a time when you're alone, alone. You can't be. Jesus is always with you. Are you Christ? He's always with you. He's in you. You can't get away from him. His spirit is with you. Can't be otherwise. But also things like uh, Philippians 4, I have a need. And what does Paul say there for us? Uh, My God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Sometimes what we define as our need is not what God thinks our need is, right? I say, God, I want this amount of money. I want this guy, this girl, and I don't get it. And what does that tell me? That wasn't my need. But God is committed to my needs, Philippians 4. So you get it. What are the promises you and I can count on? The promises of God, I think it's 2 Corinthians, maybe 1 or 2, where the promises of God in Christ, they're all yes. They're all yes. Jesus is the evidence of God's saying yes to all of his promises. We want to take that to the bank, just as the Jews have for the land promises. Um, I want to point out, and this is sort of uh, by reference of uh, sort of a lead-in for next week as well. So this song, it is a, it's a remembrance, so it's looking back. So if we use a timeline here, Let's just say this was, if it was written by David or it's in his lifetime, King David lives at about 1,000 B.C. So the incident, so if we're talking about the covenant to Abraham, Abraham's about 2,000 B.C. So the psalmist is looking back and he's saying, uh, God gave promises 1,000 years ago. 
And then let's say he's talking about, you know, the end of the song that he led them into the land of promise. Well, when did the Jews come into the land of promise? There's a debate. If, if you know this stuff, you'll know there's a debate on earlier late date. Uh, the, early, the early date is my choice. So the Jews get into the land of promise about 1400 B.C. So this is written at least 400 years after they've been brought in, after what Psalm 105 is talking about. So, you know, one of the, the, the benefits of hindsight, right? You see how a thing came out. Right? You see what, what happens. So the psalmist is looking back. He sees God providing in the wilderness. And he sees God bringing them in. You know, the, sort of the end of Deuteronomy in the book of Joshua. So the benefit is it's hindsight. It's Monday morning quarterbacking, right? It's hindsight. And we say, man, look at what God did. Wasn't that great? Now let me ask you, what about the people who were living it? Not, not the one who looks back a thousand years later. Not the one who looks back 400 years later and says, oh, look at what God did. What about the people that were living it? Now, Psalm 106 is going to show, in fact, Psalm 107 does as well. It's going to show that when God's covenant people were faced with trials, guys, they almost never responded right. Almost never. It's just the exception. They responded badly. When we say God is sovereign, that all things work together for good, do we, if we say that, God's sovereign, say it on Sunday morning in church, God is sovereign. Maybe we sing about God's sovereignty. Or Romans 8, 28, or God's working all things together for our good. And he hands out lollipops when he tells you. Yeah, or candy or whatever your, your thing is. Well, that's one thing, isn't it? But, but when the trials hit, what are we saying to ourselves? And what's our attitude? And what's our outlook? So, so put ourselves back into some of these stories, just a few. Verse 16 and 17. And guys, when we say God is sovereign, a lot of times uh, in our minds, we're letting God off the hook for, God, for things God says, I did this. We don't want to let God off the hook in the sense that we're trying to save God from God. God says, I did these things. So notice this, verses 16 and 17, God brought the famine on the land that hit Egypt and on the whole Middle East. That, the psalmist doesn't say it's global uh, climate change. He says God brought on a famine. It's crystal clear. God brought the famine on. And guess what else? It was God behind Joseph being sold by his brothers as a slave. The psalmist doesn't look back and say, those bad guys. He says, oh, by the way, God made sure Joseph got down to Egypt. And he wasn't particular about the way it happened. He went down as a slave. And it wasn't easy. I think it's about 20 years between the time Joseph is sold and he meets his brothers again, and he's been elevated, of course, to the status of Pharaoh's right-hand man uh, during the famine. What did he know in the moment? How did he feel when his brothers sold him to the Ishmaelites, and he's taken down in bonds to Egypt, to a foreign land? And, and guys, in case I forget this, uh, Christ is in all of this, by the way, and that's what we'll, we'll just hit some high points to say that. But if you look at the life of Joseph, some of it is written out very clearly. Uh, I want to say chapters 48 and 50. The references are on your study sheet. 
what does Joseph know then, though, when it happens? Does he know that God is behind his enslavement to the Ishmaelites in the day? When you read his story, there's no comment on it uh, about what he knows. There's only, we're told, he has God's favor. He gets to Potiphar's house, he has God's favor. Until Mrs. Potiphar accuses him of rape. And, and what happens? And so what do you see in the life of Joseph? He's the exalted son of the father, and he's reduced, and he's reduced, and he's reduced. Who does that sound like? <laughs> That's Philippians 2, isn't it? Christ is the glory of the, of the Father, and what happens? He steps down, he steps down, he steps down. And why does he step down? Because he's bringing redemption. Does Joseph know when his life has fallen out, and he's in prison, it's, kind of, it's this plaintive pleas, he's telling these guys, I don't belong here, I'm innocent. Does he know? No, God's behind all of this, so that when those dreams are brought to Joseph by couple guys that work in Pharaoh's administration and he rightly interprets them when Pharaoh needs an answer he's going to go to Joseph and Joseph's wisdom is apparent and Pharaoh exalts him and why is all that so that Joseph is in the place that he can save the descendants of Abraham and and all of Egypt as well what does Joseph know in the day though in the time he doesn't know any of that until he sees his brothers and he figures out, oh, this is what was going on. God was in this all the time. And it was for this purpose. It was to save many lives. What do we know in the moment? Look at verses 24 through 25. This says, God says he turned the hearts of Pharaoh and the Egyptians to hate the Jews. What, what got Pharaoh and Egypt to hate the Jews so much? It was God. Why did God do that? Because he's setting up this tension between the Egyptians and the Jews in light of the exodus that's going to come out. God's behind that. Think of the suffering, the labor, the making the bricks, making bricks without straw. Think of how many young Jewish kids died because of Pharaoh's edicts. God takes credit for all of that. Big picture. God brought this about to get the Jews ready for their departure. In verses 39 through 41, God's provision in the wilderness, he doesn't mention anything about Israel's grumbling and complaining. If you read the stories, when Israel needs water, they complain. Meat, they complain. Manna, they complain. Help from other armies, they complain. It's the constant refrain. They didn't know, no, God's in all of these. That, that this trial, this thing you need but don't have, God's showing you He's ready to give it to you. You need to trust Him. The psalmist looks back on earlier generations showing the ways God was moving His plans along and he rejoices. And we need to be able to do that ourselves. We want to put our place in a frame of reference, in a mindset that the psalmist was. I'm looking back so I can see what God was up to. I'm not highlighting the distress or the challenges I'm highlighting and I'm focusing on what God did and how he did it. Part of the beauty of songs like this are that they remind us God is not only in the times of blue skies and green lights, but he's in the challenging trials as well. And I'll just wind down on this just briefly, just to hit the high notes. Same verses, 16 through 25. Joseph is a picture of Jesus. And guys, you see this over and over and over. The references are on your study sheet. Have we trusted Christ? Have we trusted Christ? 
who came, who reduced himself so that many people could be saved alive as it is this day. If we trust in Christ. Verses 25 through 36, thanks God uh, for a powerful intervention. Colossians 2.15 and Ephesians 1.19 through 23 highlight Jesus' death and resurrection as his triumph over the enemy. That just as God was coming in through Moses and the miracles, triumphing over the enemy gods of Egypt, these verses say specifically, God was putting to open shame the demonic entities that had been at play in his resurrection. He was inserting himself in power and demonstrating there's no other power in heaven or earth visible or invisible, that can deliver from Jesus' power. It's the same thought as the Exodus account. And then last, give thanks. God delivered Israel from Egypt to the land of promise. you got a reference from 1 Corinthians 10. All these things happen for our instruction, and ultimately they're meant to lead us to Christ. We've got a few promises too, right? Um, these don't always uh, have the same weight for us, same sense of importance. But we have promises that we're looking for a new heaven and new earth. You're going to get a body that lasts forever with no downside. I don't know what that looks like for you. Health forever. Hair, a slim waistline. I don't know. We were talking to somebody asked, well, these babies that die or are aborted, what are they like in heaven? And my first thought was, are there any fat people in heaven? I don't think there are. <laughs> Just like I don't think there's any babies like that in heaven, I think that we are fully and all that God meant us to be. Fully, just as Adam showed up on the day of creation, the sixth day, and he looks like he's this mature male, all in one thing. He's all that God means him to be, nothing he shouldn't. I think that's what it'll be in heaven. We have so much to look forward to. So whatever's going on in the moment, whatever challenges, we can afford to look forward Promises of God, He keeps them. We've got something to look forward to. We can look back, though, too, and say, Lord, thank You, even for the, the difficult times. You've shaped me. Your promises have always been true. This is a good thing. So looking back, we have reason to give thanks. Looking forward, we have reason to give thanks. Good. Okay, well, rise with me, if you would, and let's close by reading Revelation 21, verses 2 through 4. Good? Let's read. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, 